as we prepare for the message today. You can turn in your Bibles to Philippians 3, 7 through 10. But where, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Please remain standing as I just pray for the message. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and your word is powerful, and it's life-changing. And I ask that you would anoint your word this morning and prepare our hearts as fertile soil to hear what you speak to your people. In Christ's name, amen. All right, well, it is a joy for me to be here. Um, I thank you all for your prayers and your words of encouragement. It's good to see you all. I'm going to ask a few questions as we get started, and I'm going to ask you to raise your hands. So don't feel awkward. Go ahead and shoot it up there. Give me a good, honest response. I'm going to ask you some things about your reading of Philippians. And it doesn't mean you're proud if you read it. The thing's only four pages long. It takes me longer to read some letters from my insurance company. So go ahead and, and give me a good honest answer. <clears throat> How many of you have read the letter of Philippians at one sitting since we started this study? Come on, good, good, a lot of hands. How many have you have read the book of Philippians more than once at one sitting? See, good, good job. And I, this gives everyone a chance. You know, this is the day of get, making sure everyone gets a medal. How many of you have heard at least one of Pastor Kyle's messages on Philippians? See, you're all winners. Um, how many of you have come to basically the same conclusion I have? Oops, we need the, we need the PowerPoint up. <laughs> I am not Paul. Good. I saw a couple of hands go up. Um, wow. What, what was with this guy? The tone of the letter, if you sat down and read the whole thing from front to back instead of just getting little sound bites and verses, is amazingly upbeat. It's positive, and yet we all know he's, he's in prison as he writes. I find myself whining and complaining and act like I'm being persecuted because my commute is too long to the job that I have. I mean, you know, things are actually going really well. And, you know, and I let small things bother me. We all do. How is it that Paul can, be in, can have such a positive attitude while in such a negative circumstance? And even more importantly, what prevents us from basking in God's grace and experiencing that same level of joy the way Paul seems to in Philippians? And why do so many, or so few believers today 
demonstrate the very things that Paul prays for consistently and urges the church to do consistently throughout his many letters. Here's just a few of them are the ones that are found in Philippians. See how well you match and your Christian life fits these things. That in chapter 1, verse 6, the good work that has begun in us will be carried to completion. Now that's God's work, but are we making progress? Chapter 1, verse 9, that we would have love abounding more and more in knowledge and deep insight. This is Paul's desire for us. Chapter 1, verse 10, that we'd be pure and blameless. He repeats that again in chapter 2. And in chapter 1, 27, that we would stand firm, contending for the gospel. Am I contending for the gospel daily? Chapter 2, verse 12, that we'd be obedient. Chapter 2, 14, that we'd do everything without complaining or arguing. Chapter 3, verse 10, that we would know Christ. And as we read, finding fellowship and sharing in his sufferings. I like to find fellowship around hot dogs and potlucks. Sharing in his sufferings. That we would live as citizens of heaven. That we'd be content in all circumstances. That we'd be able to do all things through Christ. I'm not there yet. So, none of us are there yet. <laughs> none of us are perfect. None of us can say we've accomplished or even come close to all those things that Paul desires and prays uh, for the churches even today. And we feel bad about it. We wish we could do better. And I want to talk about that wish and that feeling. That feeling of inadequacy that drives us to alternately strive harder and then give up and plunge into our old bad behaviors, which results in isolation. I call this a spiritual bipolar syndrome. And it is the result of something called shame. Our biggest barrier to experiencing the kind of joy that Paul typifies and is writing about is that we compare ourselves to other people and to our own unrealistic expectations. It's natural to do that, of course, because we're bombarded by images of perfection constantly in the media, in music, in the internet, you know, you can name a thousand of them. I have a muffin top instead of a six-pack. I'm too short. He's too tall. I'm too round. I'm too skinny. My hair isn't vibrant and bouncy. Right? My nose is a funny shape. My skin isn't flawless. My car is not sophisticated and sporty. Actually, it is, but... My house... My house doesn't have curb appeal. My teeth are not blindingly white. My dog is overweight. My cat box smells. The kids' clothes are not color-coordinated. I'm just a no-good failure. Right? We're, we're comparing ourselves constantly 
to unrealistic images presented, sometimes from families, sometimes from our past, sometimes from media and TV. Paul could have fallen for this same destructive way of thinking. Think about it. I'm in prison. Why am I in prison? When Peter preached, 3,000 people got saved. I don't have anything to say. I wasn't with Jesus for three years like the real apostles. Why do people fall asleep when I preach and fall out of the window? Why do I have to escape from a city by being lowered through a window in a basket at night like a criminal? Why did my ship get wrecked at sea? I guess I'm just a rotten evangelist. I'll never amount to anything. Because I'm not Peter. But Paul doesn't go down this path. Instead, if you read his letters, so often they start with a very simple, confident introduction, I, Paul. Or in the case of Philippians, Paul and Timothy, and he goes on to, to greet the elders of the church. Just a simple, confident opening. Who is he to be writing these letters where he admonishes people and, and corrects them and tells them what to do? He's just Paul. But where did that confidence come from? You see, when we look at our circumstances and let that define who we are, or we compare ourselves to someone else, and I'll talk about that in a second, when we compare ourselves to that unrealistic mental image that we have, we will always erode our confidence. We can never come out ahead in those kind of comparisons because it's a rigged game. We will always choose our area of weakness, and compare it to someone else's strength. You're guaranteed to lose. It'll always happen. So none of us are perfect, and this feeling in your gut is called shame. I've been reading a book and some of this material is from this book by um, Dr. William Reitkirk, who's a pastor, a psychologist, and a counselor at the Labrie Fellowship, which is an organization in Switzerland started by Francis Schaeffer. So he's a, he's a pretty sharp guy. And um, this is the title of his book, If Only I Could Believe. It talks about the barriers that people experience to just giving themselves to God. And one of the chapters is on um, guilt and shame. We have a way of dealing with guilt. And guilt and shame, they're related, but they're very different. And the remedy for guilt is easy to find in our theology of grace and the propitiation through Jesus Christ. Wright Kirk describes it this way. In a civil court, a suitable punishment or fine will be the means to restore an offender. It removes their fear of punishment, for once punished, they cannot be punished a second time for the same offense. When they have paid the fine, they are free to go and to forget about their offense. When we confess our sin or trespasses to God, he promises immediate and total forgiveness. 
based on the fact that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty on our behalf. Sometimes we still have to bear the scars left by our sin, but the guilt is completely removed. See, guilt and shame are related, but they're different. Guilt is an objective fact. Shame is a feeling. And the way we remove guilt is not the same. Here's a quick summary of, of the differences. Guilt is an objective fact. It results from violation of a stated law. That's what Paul meant when he said, the law made us aware of sin. Without the law, you're not guilty of anything. But once we have the law and you violate it, now you have guilt and we have the need for someone to pay the price that we're unable to pay. The result of guilt is a broken fellowship with God. It's very matter of fact. You are sinful, you've broken my laws, I can no longer have fellowship with you. And the remedy is repentance and forgiveness. Very straightforward. But shame is subjective. It comes from within our own heads. It's, it's from, the, from comparing oneself to some external standard or another person. And the, the result is it erodes self-esteem and it produces this downward spiral of striving, failing, and feeling bad, which results in, in, in isolation and hiding. The remedy we'll discover as we go forward. Wright Kirk writes, God has given us each unique gifts. He does not give an eye the impossible task of hearing, and he does not give a foot the impossible task of seeing. But we do this all the time. We ignore our own gifts, and we look at someone else and say, I need to be like that. Or I need to be perfect. Some of us have this perfection um, obsession. Say that fast. Perfection obsession. Um, shame is not the same as guilt, and its remedy is not the same. After repentance and forgiveness, we may still feel guilty or ashamed, or like we just don't measure up to the standard. But that feeling is not guilt. The feeling is shame. Guilt is an objective fact based on violation of a law. Once the price is paid, it's behind you. But that shame lingers. So point four on here, we know that so striving, striving for perfection just doesn't work. No matter how hard we try, we're going to fail. We're, not, we're going to come up short. There's going to be someone with whiter teeth than you. And so we hide. Right, Kirk again is writing. He says, shame drives a wedge between my real self and my ideal self. As I see my real self incapable of measuring up to my ideal self, I become ashamed. And get this, I reject myself. Rejection comes from inside. Shame drives a wedge between myself and those around me. And we can see this demonstrated. You, um, many pastors and preachers have called this up as an example because it's the first one in the Bible, Genesis 3, 7, um, 7 and 8. Adam and Eve, after violating the one law, the one rule they had, they violated it. And what did they do? They, 
they suddenly realized they were naked. They tried to make coverings for themselves. They tried to hide their nakedness. And they physically hid themselves somewhere in the garden from God. The result of shame is, is, is isolation. It's hiding, wanting to hide from the people around you and especially from God. As we saw in that table, shame is subjective. It erodes self-confidence, results in hiding, isolation, and this downward spiral. Whenever we're comparing ourselves to something else, that's an inherently selfish point of view. You're starting with self and then figuring out how you don't quite measure up to anyone around you. Hopefully, you, you're hoping to find that you surpass someone near you and say, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. But often that backfires. The, the way that shame erodes your confidence is it just fills you with the sense of I've failed before, I'll probably fail again, there's no sense in trying. And that kills self-confidence. The way shame erodes authority is by making you think that, why would anyone listen to me? I'm a loser and a hypocrite. I don't live up to the things I say. It hinders relationships between people as well as God, because you're saying that person, the person I work with, my wife, my husband, God himself doesn't want to be around me, and I certainly can't let them see who I really am. And it produces isolation from God and from one another just because you want to cover up, number one, your feelings, the failure itself you want to hide, or you want to numb your senses and cover up from your own observation the, the mistakes and the failures or fill our lives with distractions. The end result is isolation from others and hiding. Now, I should point out that shame does have its positive effects because, after all, we were created by God and what we're experiencing is something that God created in us. Shame produces humility, which is essential to recognizing our utter dependence on Christ. And in God's purpose for shame, it's to lead each and every one of us to repentance. So how do we deal with shame? We've all got it. How do we deal with it? Number one, reject works. In, uh, as Paul shows us in Philippians, instead of boasting about his own accomplishments, which were pretty significant, Paul had learned to boast in Christ. The passage we read at the beginning, Philippians 3, verse 7, said, I once thought these things were valuable. What things? He's talking about his education and training and background. He... He had, um, you know, he was a Pharisee. He had been trained by some of the well-known uh, Pharisees of the time. Not only did he have an education and training, he had influence because of his role, his position. 
he says, I now consider that stuff worthless because of what Christ has done. So he's not boasting in his own accomplishments. You want to reject circumstantial evidence. Last week's message by Kyle was awesome. It was titled, Because of My Chains. How many remember? How many took notes? I did. It was great. All right. I had to listen to it afterwards online. But um, that phrase, because of my chains, was not used by Paul as an excuse. I have to say that because I would probably use it as an excuse. Because of my chains, I can't write. You know, I got this heavy chain on my hand. How can I write letters to people? Because of these chains, I can't get out and go to synagogue and, and teach like I used to. Because of these chains, I can't go plant new churches. But Paul uses it as a victory cry. He says, because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. What a difference in point of view from this negative downward spiral. He makes that U-turn and all of a sudden... And it's not just a mind trick. It's seeing things with God's eyes. It's seeing things as they truly are. Remember, he says, these things that have happened to me actually are resulting in the pr promotion of the gospel. That actually represents that 180 degree shift from the way we see things to the way God sees things. Just one, just one. All right, reject comparisons. Paul rejected comparisons, and with it, the shame that comes with it. He refused to compare, compare himself to others. And, um, and this is really important for pastors and church leaders to remember. It's so easy to get caught in that trap, because we want our church to be successful. Whatever that means, what does it mean? We tend to think in terms of quantitative things. What's our annual budget? Our church is going to be hitting the big time. We're going to be a real church when we have an annual budget of $200,000. Or seating capacity. When we add 30 more seats, we're getting close. But a real church has 250 or more. A real church has an increase in attendance of 20% annually. Or the number of baptisms. That's big in some denominations. We've got to have at least 10 baptisms a year, and it's got to increase by 20% annually. Or the number of adults involved in small groups or Sunday school. We keep charts. It's, it's a, there's a danger in a lot of these modern management methods as they apply to church performance. It's okay to track those things, and we ought to. We ought to be aware of whether we're reaching the adults or the kids or we have people you know, taking advantage of certain ministries, but the, we must not fall into the temptation to evaluate our worth or our significance based on numbers. Paul never used numbers, size, or quantitative evaluations when praying for or encouraging the churches. He never said, you need to be 50% bigger when I come back next year. 
He did, did he? He said, you ought to know Jesus better when I come back next year. All of Paul's encouragements and his evaluations were qualitative. They were said, you've you got to know him better. You've got to be deeper in the faith. You've got to be more like Christ. That's the only quantity in his life. Be more like Christ. That's the only quantity that we should have in our lives. There is a metric that the Bible uses. Love the Lord your God with 100% of your heart. 100% of your soul, 100% of your strength. That's the only, that's the only met metric that the Bible gives us to evaluate our faith. Paul only had one thing he compared himself to. It wasn't the other apostles' ministries. It wasn't numerical standards. The only thing he allowed himself to focus on and think about was the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. As long as Paul was making disciples, baptizing and teaching people, regardless of his personal circumstances, he was at peace. He wasn't worried about numbers only that he was doing what he was called to do and that the believers were growing in their faith, their perseverance, and their knowledge of Christ. That's the only goal he had. So the remedy for shame seems to be all about changing the way you think. Just lower your sights. Is that what I'm saying? Um, I want, I'm going to get back to that, but I want to take a little detour here and explain to you what the goal of all preaching is, and certainly what I'm doing here today, um, which is not to make you feel good about yourself with pipe, pop psychology, or even good psychology, but to point you to Jesus. That's the goal of preaching. And it is, but it's in our ultimate acceptance by God through Jesus that we finally find the approval and the acceptance that we've always longed for, that we don't find anywhere except him, and therefore feel shame, reject ourselves. I want to take a short detour, though, to talk about those who suffer from clinical depression or other physiological uh, things or emotional trauma that, that could, that makes it impossible for them to just fix themselves. It is not uncommon for those who have some kind of a, a debilitating depression or, or, or just mental uh, trauma of some sort to feel shame, great shame at, at, in their lives. And unfortunately, I think that Christians often contribute to that, to those feelings, because sometimes we convey the message that people who rely on medicine or counseling or professional help to deal with these things uh, just lack faith or discipline. And um, I just want you to know that that is a wicked and baseless point of view. It's just as bad as the, the body shaming that has all of a sudden gone viral all over the internet right now. Someone shows from some cellulite and they get a, a negative tweet 
and, and the whole internet goes crazy. It's pointless. It, it's evil to evaluate people based on external circumstances. Um, I believe that mental health issues and how we address them may be the greatest challenge and opportunity for the church in the coming decade. <clears throat> the, the church must be a refuge for all people. And no one who comes in these doors should be made to feel ashamed for their circumstances, for whatever circumstances they find themselves in. Um, if anyone suffers from clinical depression or um, you know, receives help, they, they, they ought to be able to receive as much help from good science, professional help, good medical advice that's available by God's grace. In fact, doctrinally, I'd like to state that I believe that the use of good science, professional knowledge, and, and good medical help are a way of, obe of being obedient to God's command to man to have dominion over all the earth. God, man's dominion does not just extend to four-legged beasts or to birds and fish or corn and fruit, but it extends to the microscopic level. It extends to the physiology of, of how our brains work and our bodies work. And if anyone you know suffers from anxiety, depression, feelings of worthlessness, by all means, seek the best professional help you can get. And thank God for it. And don't shoulder any shame for it. And I believe that anyone can be, will be able to follow Paul's example. That even in these mental chains, the brothers and sisters in Christ are encouraged and contend all the more... Um, I lost my place here. You know, for, for, for the gospel, you know? And these things that have happened to me actually can be used to promote and advance the gospel. There is no one in here who is immune from that change of view and that change of direction and the victory that it brings with it. So now let's get back to our spiritual problem. Um... In the story of the prodigal son, or the lost son as they're calling it nowadays because we're being seeker-friendly, <laughs> Luke, um, Luke records the father's uh, reaction when the son finally decides in desperation to, to return home because maybe at least his dad will give him a job on, on his farm. And it says in uh, verse 20, I believe, but while he was still a long way off. How many of you feel like you're a long way off? He was still a long way off and his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That's shame speaking, along with repentance. But the father said to the servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let's have a feast and celebrate.
you can rest knowing that you are accepted. The same fatherly compassion demonstrated in this parable is what Jesus shows when he accepts us completely. And he is not ashamed of us. Hebrews 2, verses 11 and 12 says, Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters when he says, I will declare your name among my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. It is only through Christ's unconditional acceptance of you and me when we turn to him in humility and an attitude of repentance that we find our shame erased. We need to stop comparing ourselves to any other standard because we can never boast in our accomplishments. No matter how good you look, it's not good enough. <laughs> we can only boast in what he has done. Our boasting is in Christ alone in Philippians 3, 3. For it is we who are the circumcision. He uses that term circumcision to say we are the true people of God. We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. That verse means those of us who put no confidence in ourselves are the true people of God. You're accepted. You're in. Philippians 3.9, I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous. You get that? I don't, get, I don't earn righteousness. I become righteous through faith in Christ. So, wrapping up with some uh, practical reminders from mostly Philippians. Don't try to impress others. Right, Kirk again is writing, he says, Do not model your self-image on the stars of Hollywood, but on the star of Jerusalem. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, Hebrews 12, 2, instead of trying to live up to what other people may or may not think. Paul pushed aside all the heroes in his life, all of those that he could have aspired to be like from his background and his training in order to follow Jesus. And he is speaking about himself in his own life in Philippians 3, 8 and 9, the verses we read, when he says, I consider that all rubbish in comparison to the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ, who was his only role model. Number two, accept yourself. Um, you're all familiar with the serenity prayer. Um, that's the one that says, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That was penned by a uh, pastor named Reinhold Niebar and was first appeared in a sermon in 1934. Um, but it's just a simple acknowledgement of the fact that there's things I can't change. That's all. Give me wisdom, God, to know there are some things I need to address, but some things I can't. Give me the wisdom to know and by your grace to move forward. We have to realize we are fallen. We live in a fallen world. And we'll never be perfect until we get to that place where Jesus has prepared for us. 
Remember in Philippians 2.13, God is working in you, giving you both the desire and the power to do what pleases him. He'll get you there. Learn from your mistakes. Build a realistic and healthy self-respect by learning from your mistakes as well as building on successes. You have had some successes. You got dressed this morning, I can tell. Um, there's a story about Thomas Edison that says um, when he was trying to find the right filament to use in his new invention, the light bulb, um, they needed to find something that would burn for longer than just a second before it was just consumed. And his assistant, the story is that his assistant came in and said, why don't we just abandon this project? We've already tested over a hundred different materials and we can't find anything that works. And Thomas Edison said, what? We have found so far at least 100 compounds with excellent resistance to electricity. Right? He, was, he had learned. He was, he was learning from his mistakes. Philippians 3.13, forgetting the past, looking forward to what lies ahead. There's victory. There's Jesus Christ going forward, regardless of what's behind us. Fourth point, choose your friends wisely. This is from Wright Kirk. And, um, I, I, you know, my wife was sharing with me a little bit about the wonderful woman's study she had. And as she was relating it to me, um, I was thinking of this quote because it's an example of this quote in action. Wright Kirk said, we need mirrors to help us see what we look like. That is what the community we live in can do for us. Ideally, we communicate with friends who can speak the truth in love. Iron sharpens iron, in Proverbs 27, 17. Sometimes it makes sparks fly, but the result is a better, sharper instrument. The Christian community should be a community where people do not just say what others want to hear in order to please their egos, but it should be a community where people speak honestly and in love shape each other to become more Christ-centered. Amen? Don't forsake assembling together and sharpening one another. Finally, as Mufasa said to Simba, remember who you are. Philippians 3.20, we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus lives and we are eagerly waiting for him to return to bring us to where he is. That's who you are. And don't worry. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, you should be able to repeat it, recite it with me because we did memorize this at one point. Do not be anxious for anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Notice that he doesn't say, you'll get what you ask for. He says, you'll get peace. You'll get peace. And finally, think good thoughts. Again, this is not just pop psychology. This is, comes from Scripture. Um, one of my favorite object lessons about faith, uh, I heard it many, many years ago. Some of you may be familiar with it. Sometimes it's called the parable of the, the two wolves or the two dogs. 
I had to look it up to find out if it was really true, and I found out that um, it had first appeared in print in a book by Billy Graham in 1978. There was also a version of the story that's attributed to George Bernard Shaw, who's an Irish poet. I don't know how he was, he's doing with it. Um, and, but there is anecdotal evidence to show that it existed in Cherokee oral legends as early as 1958. So it's not ancient, and who knows where it actually started from, but here's my favorite version of it. It says, a chief of an American Indian tribe was visited by a missionary, and upon hearing the gospel message, he believed and received the sacraments. The missionary traveled constantly, and so would occasionally come back and visit the tribe and encourage the chief. On one such visit, the missionary asked the chief how his spiritual life was progressing. The chief said, I find that there are two dogs constantly at war within me, a black dog and a white dog. And the missionary asked, so which dog usually wins? And the chief said, the one I feed. Philippians puts it this way, chapter 4, verse 8, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Fix your thoughts on what is true. Do you know what is true? Jesus loves me. This I know. Because the Bible tells me so. I am not Paul. I'm Joe. You all say this with me. I am me. And that's enough in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. We're going to prepare our hearts for communion now. Thank you, Lord God, for your amazing accomplishments. The only thing we boast in. Help us to continue to focus on you during this time of communion. Um, communion, for all of you who may be joining us for the first time, is this is our celebration of Christ and his work, the work that he alone could and did accomplish. Um, communion is for those who have received Christ and who are part of that family that he has uh, adopted us into. If you're not sure of your position in Christ, we urge, suggest that you... Don't partake in communion. Listen to the music. Think about the message. And if you want to be sure, please don't hesitate to talk to myself or Morgan or Kyle or, or any of the other mature saints here who can uh, help you address that. Um, while the music plays, you come up and take the juice and the element and the cracker, which is gluten-free, return to your seat and partake of the elements there. Um, that's about it. Take a moment and prepare your heart in prayer. Confess any known sins. And let's worship our Lord and Savior who accomplished it all. Amen. <laughs>